As you're seated, would you open to 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 Peter 5, and we'll read um, verses 5 through 7 this morning. Uh, We'll read verses 5 through 7, and uh, we've covered the first part of 5a, we'll call it 5, of of verse 5, we'll call it 5a, and we'll uh, we'll study verses 5b and 6 and 7, but we'll read them both together, all three of these verses together this morning. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble." Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Father, what a blessed truth that is, that you, the almighty, all-powerful God, there is no one greater than you, and yet you care for us. We praise you and we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Well, over the past several weeks, months, year, couple years maybe, we've, I, I've been made aware that we've covered some fairly controversial topics. Um, we've covered uh, divorce and government and uh, the believer's responsibility to government, family life and being subject there, abortion, pastors. We've covered some difficult and controversial topics because the Bible covers them. It's important for us to realize that when God gave us this book, this Bible, He didn't give us a book of stories to entertain children. He did not give us a book of theological points to stimulate theologians and their discussions. And He didn't give us an ancient book of morality to bore teenagers and adults alike. He didn't give us any of that. These are the blessing of God, His very words to us which are able to save our souls, and that is crucial for life after death. But what about life before death? God also gave us His very words for our life now in His Son. His precious and very great promises are given to us by His divine power so that we now have all things that pertain to life right now and godliness in His Word. This word of God, this Bible, is meant for life before death. It's not just for teaching us about life after death, but before. It's not meant just for Sunday mornings when we get together. It's not just for koinonia groups. It's not just for our quiet times in the morning. This is meant to control our thoughts and our minds and our feelings throughout the entire week, all day, every day. He speaks to every important area of life in this word. This is teaching about life from the author of life, right? So you say, well, what's controversial about that? <laughs> why, are, why are these teachings controversial? Well, we'll find out one day that eternally these are not controversial teachings. This is settled truth in heaven, and it will be true forever. Heaven and earth may pass away, but God's word will never pass away. It's only when God says one thing and someone else comes along and says something else and we recognize that person as an authority or we see some kind of merit or value in what they say, and when they're opposite or different, well, that's when things become a little bit controversial. Look at how people believe that creation came to exist. That question. God tells us in Genesis 1 and 2 how he made everything out of nothing by the power of his voice. And he told us that he made us in his image, shaping us from the 
dust of the ground and then breathing into us and giving us life. That, that's what he said. Um, that's settled and that's true. But other people have different ideas about how we came to exist, don't they? The Egyptians had an account. They said there were lots of different gods and they were fighting and working together and different, one of the, some tears from one of the gods formed man and that's how we came to be about. Uh, the sun god Ra, according to the Egyptians, sets in the west and when he, when he sets in the west, I think I'm pointing to the north, but when he sets, <laughs> when he sets in the west, uh, he, he actually disappears from the earth and goes down into the underworld and shines light there and destroys enemies there. And then to rise in the east again, he must be regenerated all over again, back to life, and, and come back into our sight. And just on that point alone, we know that that's not a good explanation for how creation came to be, is it? Uh, the, the sun doesn't disappear just because we don't see it. It goes together. It doesn't even go to the other side of the earth. The earth is spinning, right? And so we know that that claim is not even something to be considered. It was dismissed. And even Israel, when they lived in Egypt for 400 years, didn't buy into that claim of creation. But people today have submitted a different theory about how the world was formed and where we came from. And the intentional starting point for this theory that is all around us all the time is that there is no God who made any of this. No God created anything and everything. And so the explanation goes that somehow matter, which according to the law of conservation of mass, cannot be created or destroyed, mass has just always existed. And it's just been rearranged through all of eternity in this endless cycle of rearrangement to create everything that we see and know now all around us, including us. And one day, everything will just get rearranged. Matter will become recycled and, and rearranged into something completely different, and all of this will cease to exist. It will become something different. And it all happens randomly, accidentally, no guidance, with no leading, and therefore, ultimately, it's pointless. There's no reason for matter, and matter doesn't reason. The fact that somehow we're able to reason, that we're able to think, uh, become some kind of accidental, cosmic, cruel joke, um, because once we cease to exist, then reason goes out, and the physical body stops, we cease to exist, purpose and reason all goes out the window. So you see the rival claims to creation. You see where, it's, where they start and where they lead, where they end. Rather than eternal God, there's eternal matter. Rather than a reason for our existence, there is no point. But it's not dismissed. That theory is not dismissed because people have recognized some kind of authority in those who posit that theory, right? Uh, they say those who believe this spend their lives studying nature. They study creation, and, and they've made a lot of good contributions to humankind. And so there must be something to their theory, but we know that there is a God. We know that he was there in the beginning because he made everything, and in his word he told us how everything came to be and why it came to be, and it's not pointless, no matter what experts might say in the world, this is the truth for our existence, why we're here and, and how we came to be here. The only reason that there would be controversy then is if some of us were to recognize the authority of man over the authority of God who told us all about life and what it means. It might happen when some of us become intimidated by the attacks 
of the people who posit that theory. You're just not thinking. You're not scientific enough. You're not intelligent enough. You're harming your children. You go down the list. We, there are all kinds of those, those attacks. But if we hold to the authority of God and his ability to communicate effectively in language, which he invented, there's really no controversy. Here's what happened. This is what he said happened, so here's what we believe happened. So based on all that, the Bible teaches about the beginning. We believe that the Bible teaches about the end. We also believe that the Bible teaches us about all of the middle, all of the right now, life here and now. Now, as we've been studying about life here and now, we've been learning that and being reminded that life is going to be full of suffering and that we're going to be persecuted for this faith. We've, we've already seen that, right? Uh, rather than being pointless, it's purposeful. But even with all of that truth, knowing all of those things, holding fast to this, some of us, many of us, may start to become a little bit anxious, a little bit anxious about the future. Th these are huge topics that we're exploring through the scriptures. These are enormous life events, and we may begin to worry about things. There may be lingering worries in the back of our minds throughout the day, um, questions that may come. And along this spectrum on the opposite end, there may be just some of us who become absolutely paralyzed in worry and fear and anxiety and what might happen. Is it the end? Have I done what I'm supposed to do? What will death be like? What will the end be like? Uh, what will I feel? What, what will I think? Will it hurt? What will happen to my kids? And regardless of our thoughts about the end or how it might ha happen or how it might turn out, other anxieties arise in our minds and our hearts. Speaking of my kids, what are they going to turn out like? Or why did they turn out the way that they did? Did I do something wrong, right? Parents worry about things like that. But all of us encounter doubts about ourselves, about others, about the future, uncertainty and events and circumstances and what will people say of me or think of me and, and what will happen if I do this or if I don't do that. And all of us will encounter those thoughts, those questions, but we will deal with them differently. Some of us, again, will be so plagued by these worries and by anxieties and fear that certain aspects of our life will become more difficult than they should be. Some of us will struggle with sleep because of worries, anxieties. Some of us will never be able to relax, always on edge, always restless. Uh, some can't concentrate because of anxieties. They'll become tired or irritable. Many sweat excessively because of anxiety or fear. For some, they'll become, again, so paralyzed they can't function at all. How do they help themselves? How do we help them the world steps in with the authorities and the experts to say, here's how to help. God's word steps in and says, here's how to help. Where will we turn? Which answer will we listen to? According to the National Alliance on Mental Illness, over 40 million adults in the U.S. have some kind of anxiety disorder. About two out of every 10 adult people you meet in the U.S., have been diagnosed as having some kind of anxiety disorder. The National Institutes of Health claims that one in four adults suffers from some kind of diagnosable mental disorder in a given year, and the National Council of Mental Well-Being recently claimed that almost half, one out of every two adults will experience some kind of mental illness during their lifetime, and the most common category for mental illness, according to these experts, is the category of anxiety disorders. 
Examples include generalized anxiety disorder, social anxiety disorder, or social phobia. Other specific phobias, separation anxiety disorder, and and more. There are others. But from this information, from these statistics, the numbers, regardless of what we believe or think about these things, there are obviously a lot of people, millions of people, suffering inside. And I know some of you here suffer from this this morning, not just because the statistics say it's true, but from talking with many of you, and you've let me know that that's true. One thing that we need to do in the church, and starting here in our church, Canyon Bible Church, is recognize this plague that has swept across people all over this land, even in the church. Recognize and invite people into our church, into our lives that will share this suffering with us, and that we can help and love and not push them off to the side and not say, well, if you need help with that, you should, you should go. <laughs> you should find help. Why? Because the Bible addresses how to help. God's word teaches us how to deal with anxiety. If anxiety is this big of a problem for so many of us, we need to know how to care for people because we should be loving one another, all of the one another's that we continually talk about. We need to know how to care for people struggling with this, for ourselves and for others who struggle with this. The world's experts tell us that this category of anxiety disorders have a scientifically unknown cause. They don't know where it comes from. According to the Mayo Clinic, the causes of anxiety disorders are not fully understood. Anxiety is potentially caused and influenced by too many factors to know for sure why or how it happens, according to the world's experts. Why is that? Well, because again, they've started with that underlying assumption that there is no God. We are a collection of organic biological material with chemicals and electrical impulses and things happening inside. And so anxiety is something that comes upon you and happens to you. And you become a victim of it. And possibly maybe the chemicals or potentially perhaps the electrical impulses aren't working correctly, maybe. (laughs) Uh, that becomes the thinking. There's no certain explanation for it. You certainly wouldn't choose for this to happen, so you must not have done it. It comes upon you, and so you are now under the controlling influence and forces of anxiety. And according to the Mayo Clinic, quote, your worries are unlikely to simply go away on their own. They may actually get worse over time. Try to seek professional help before your anxiety becomes severe. It may be easier to treat early on, end quote. So possible causes described by these same sources that we've referred to already include genetics, brain structure, and or environment. So genetics, you have genes that predispose you to this. Your your brain structure, uh, possibly the amygdala is overreacting um, and and it may play a part in increased anxiety. Um, Your environment, the things that you've learned yourself, the things that you've learned from other people um, teach you to respond in these ways. So essentially, when you have anxiety over things that you don't control, you have fears and worries about life that make life difficult or that make you paralyzed so that you can't act in life, it's out of your control because there are so many factors that are unknown and only professionals can identify it. Only professionals can recognize it and diagnose it and then only professionals can treat it. Treatment typically includes medication, psychotherapy, or a combination of both. The medication is thought to work, believed to work in certain ways. 
it's not known for sure, but they believe that they work in certain ways and adjusting certain things with a host of side effects. Psychotherapy becomes continual. Both of them work together in a hit or miss, trial and error. Let's see if this works. Let's see if that works. This is what the world has to offer for us. Now, it is admirable that people want to help. It's good that people want to help so many people struggling. The question that we ask ourselves is why are those people, why are there so many that are outside the church that want to help people struggling in these ways? And for those within the church who are helping, why are we, so many of us, using the world's answers for how to help? The Bible has help for us. The Lord himself has given us his word and his spirit within us, working through his word in our hearts, helps us for anxiety, for worry, for fear. Now before we get too far, we have to acknowledge there are some medications, there are some physical uh, medical problems that are linked to anxiety. Uh, the heart disease, diabetes, thyroid problems, uh, certain tumors, other medical problems have been linked to anxiety. Certain medication or drugs can be a prime source of anxiety. In those cases, the first step is to address those contributing factors. But once those have been addressed as well as possible, and there's still issues with anxiety, or if those were never part of the equation for a person, we can help people to, in, in this struggle against anxiety, the way that God has given us to help them. These verses that we have in 1 Peter 5 are very instructive to help us when we struggle with it and to help others when they struggle with it. What we want to make sure that we don't do, though, is present this idea of take these two verses and call me in the morning, right? What we're not going to be saying is that these, these verses are a magical incantation and you recite these over and over again and then instantly you just remove all anxiety. It just all goes away, Right? How many of us have been taught, well, you, you just have to learn how to let go of everything and move on, right? If we're struggling with it. Anxiety can be a real struggle for some of us for the rest of our lives. Some people will struggle with physical problems. Some people will struggle with anxiety for the rest of our lives. But no matter how long it lasts, we should be waging this struggle God's way instead of the world's way, with his solutions rather than the world's. Now, there are so many verses that we could, too many that we could even list for this morning um, that we should go to and that we could go to to wage this battle uh, against anxiety and worry and fear. But that's why we're always encouraging one another to be in the words so we can see them, we can know them, we can bring ourselves there, uh, we can bring others there. But this morning, we're here at these verses. These verses are not all we need to know about this topic. Uh, or these would be the only verses that God gave us, and they're not. Praise God, these are not the only verses that we have. Uh, so again, we're not going to look at these verses and say, well, this is the solution, take this, memorize that, no problem, it all goes away, right? That's not what we're saying here. But Jesus told us, do not be anxious. He told us, don't be anxious. Why would he tell us that unless he's given us hope and a way to do that in his word. Here's a real solution. There are two essential and related considerations in these verses to help us. And we've called them considerations because even though there are two commands here, this is not all the Bible has to say about this again, okay? So that's why we're calling these considerations. The Lord willing, as we go through this, this will help us to see what God has to say about this, how it can help us just from these verses, 
but also how to pick this out from the scriptures, how to mind this for ourselves in the other passages when we go to Psalms, when we go to Philippians 4, when we go to many, many other passages um, to, to learn about how the Lord helps us through anxiety. And even if you're not struggling with it, the people around you are, and that's why we get together on Sundays, that's why even more importantly we get together on Koinonia group day, whatever day of the week that is for us, so that we can be around other believers who are in the word and helping and studying and learning these things so that we can have intimate fellowship and that speaking the word of God, the truth in love into our minds and our hearts and even intensely in counseling discipleships. That, that's what we're after. This is what we're after. So let's take a look at verse five. We're gonna finish up where we left off last week that we didn't get to finish, but it's so much like God to allow us to pick it up this week because it's connected to these verses and it's essential to working through anxiety. The first consideration, number one in your notes, is outward humility. Outward humility in verse five. Now, now what do we mean by that? Just, you just need to start acting humble. Is, is that what Peter is saying? No, humility always begins in the heart. But it is a mindset for us that spills out outward, into the outward. And Peter says here, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. We need to remember that every Bible command, in every case in the Bible, every one of them, there is an internal and an external side to the commandments, right? To all the commandments in the scripture. And this is important because Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. But if you don't have the external, you just have everything at your head level and you have everything, yes, I know it says that, I know it says it, but I don't do it, well, then we're not really obeying his commands. But if all we're ever doing is doing things and working and saying and, and serving and doing all these things and it's never internal into our mind and in our heart, we're also not obeying his commands. The inward change that God brings always brings outward change, but it begins inside, so we need to remember that. The inward change that's manifested outwardly here in this verse is humility. Again, it's a mindset. It's an attitude of putting others before yourself. And it doesn't mean your needs are never met, but it does mean that you care more for meeting others' needs than for meeting your own. It was just a few years ago that a father and a mother and a 10-year-old son were traveling to the Grand Canyon in December in a snowstorm. And their GPS had routed them to the North Rim in December in a snowstorm. Um, as you may know, State Road 67 is closed during the winter. And their GPS was trying really hard to be helpful. And so it routed them through some forest service roads in a snowstorm in December. The snow became really thick. They said, these roads are terrible. We've got to turn around. They tried to turn around. Their car slid into a ditch and they were stuck. They couldn't get out. Well, the mother was a training triathlete. She had been training for quite some time, and she had been taking some wilderness survival classes. So she said, I will be the one to go and get help. The father stayed with the son in the car. The mother left. And after she had been gone for too much time, the dad and the son got out of the car. They hiked up to higher ground, just high enough to get a cell signal. They called for help. Rescuers came and found them. But it took a little more time to find mom, and when she, they did, she was barely conscious. She was suffering from exposure and from frostbite. Praise the Lord, they all did survive, but they found that she had walked 26 miles through the snow over the course of 30 hours. 
the last nine hours, this was only a few years ago, and it happened right just in our backyard, as it were. The last nine hours, she had only gone a few miles because she would only be able to walk about 10 feet before she would collapse. And then rest and stand up and walk 10 feet and collapse. And she did that for several hours. Why would she put herself through all of that? Why wouldn't she just stay warm and in the car? Because in her mind, the needs of her family being rescued were more important than her needs of being warm and fed and, and having enough water and not having frostbitten feet. That's the idea of humility. Selflessness toward one another. Others are more important to me than me. No matter what I'm feeling, I may be feeling down, I may be feeling angry, I may be feeling sad, I may be feeling worried or anxious, but I want them to come before me. I want them to eat before I do. I want them to speak before I do. I want their desires to be met before mine are. Even if I'm nervous or fearful about what people might think of me, even if I'm anxious about what could happen or might happen, I care so much for them that it overcomes my feelings of anxiousness. They don't really go away necessarily, but I'm battling against them. Because one of the uncomfortable truths about anxiety is how self-focused it usually is. Not always, right? We're not going to just accuse everybody that, that, that struggles with this of pride. That's not what we're saying. But usually, anxious thoughts are centered around me. And even when, we're, even when they're not, we think, well, you know, I'm just concerned for my kids. I, I'm just worried about my kids. Really, when you listen, a lot of times what comes out is, I just, I don't know how I would feel if something happened to them. And so even when we're thinking about others, it can be so self-focused. So humility toward one another. What Peter says here is that this is part of the God-prescribed antidote for anxiety. It's part of our struggle against anxiety. Inwardly, my mindset is selfless and one another full. <laughs> I can make a new word. The outward part is being clothed with it toward one another. The word for clothed here means something that's tied on or strapped on, like an apron that a maid or a servant wore. And it's exactly the word that used for Jesus. When he was in the upper room with his disciples that night that he was going to be betrayed, he took a towel and he tied it around himself. That's the same word, the clothed with that towel. He bent down and washed his disciples' feet. Do you think Jesus may have had any anxiety that night? We know he did. The Bible uses words like agony, distress, great sorrow. His sweat would become as great drops of blood. He would say, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. That's what Jesus said. But he tied on that towel. He clothed himself with it as we clothe ourselves with humility, even as he struggled with anxiety and agony and distress and great sorrow. And see, when you're clothed with this humility, that's all that people see. It's all you have on, humility in your mind displayed outwardly, and that, that's what people recognize. Why would we do this? Is there any kind of motivation for why we would do this? Well, it's because of what Proverbs 3.34 says that Peter quotes for us in this verse, because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Do you know such is the danger of pride and anxiety as it stems from pride, when it does, that it takes you out of God's grace? 
You don't lose your salvation, but it removes you from that source of God's grace for you for this life right now. When you suffer from anxiety, what do you want to do? What what do you feel like doing? You want to go be around other people? (laughs) No. Your feelings tell you, curl up at home, stay home, shut the door, lock the door. And keep your kids home. Keep everybody else out. That's what anxiety, when you let it rule over you, commands you to do. And the humility to care for other people gets cut off. Because anxiety says stay home and wallow in these fears. And, and, and because of this anxiety that captures you and, and just keeps you prisoner at home, stay there. All the worries and possibilities and potentialities and, and anything that could come along, you just better stay home, Right? And anxiety, even if it doesn't start with pride, even if it doesn't start or begin with a lack of humility, it keeps you enslaved to it in the selfish perpetuation of preservation of self. And when we become filled with pride, that's not where God's grace for our life is found. That's what God opposes. And so we don't feel God helping us. So we wonder, God, how come you're not helping me with this, right? But it's because our arms have become wrapped around ourselves rather than open to him to receive his grace. The same way that we would receive his grace is closed to him because we're holding on to ourselves. But see, that's what the world's experts tell us to do. You need to grab onto yourself. You need to prop yourself up. You need to talk these things to yourself. You need to say these things and believe these things about yourself. God opposes that, he says here. He works against that. The idea is an army that arranges itself in battle against an opponent. Why would God do that to somebody? Because he's trying to break through our pride. He wants to get to our heart. Everything that God brings about in our life is to save us, to make us more like Christ, and to make us useful for him. That's his plan in everything that he's doing. He's saving us. He's making us more like Christ. He's making us useful to him. But it's going to require getting through us sometimes. And see, God's not trying to break us. He's trying to make us into his image. And he will succeed even if he has to break us first. But it's his grace that does that. He gives grace. When we're humble, he says in in verse 5 here, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. This word is the present active indicative. He's continually giving grace. There's There's an unimaginable, unending amount of grace from God for us and he never withholds it when we humbly cry out to him for it. But only as we put away pride and prideful thoughts that are centered on ourselves. His grace comes to us as we increase our humility, that outward humility. But that's just the first consideration. There's a second consideration here. Uh, Number two, verses six and seven, upward humility. The upward humility Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. The form of this verb is a command. This is an imperative. You must do this. But interestingly, this is a passive imperative. So it's not, you make sure you do this. The passive imperative is actually, allow yourself to do this. Allow yourself to be humbled. That's a, it's a better way of translating this. And why does it say it that way? Why does Peter say that? Because right now, it is already factually true that God is high and lifted up, right? We, we sang to him, he is, there is no one higher, there is no one greater than God. We fall under his sovereign control, his providence. Most people in the world don't know it and don't want to recognize it. 
we know it, and even sometimes we forget it, but Peter says, allow yourselves to be humbled. Now, recognize it. Submit to it now. This is, this is important for us to, to recognize God's greatness and to submit to him in humility because true humility from within isn't just selflessness toward others, isn't just that outward side of humility because even that is comparative. Here are others and here is me and it's really aware of me and myself. It's too aware of self. True humility recognizes the inherent, intrinsic, majestic power, wonder, and amazing truth of who God is. Isaiah, I I would commend all of us to read Isaiah chapters 40 through 48. I mean, the ways that God is magnified and exalted in these chapters is amazing. He says in Isaiah 46, 8 through 11, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. Isaiah 48 is in your notes as well. Just read through those chapters. The amazing power, the amazing strength of God. When Nebuchadnezzar regained his reason, you remember he was, he was crawling around and eating grass like an animal? He, he, he had his reason come back to him. God gave it back to him. And he says in Daniel 4, I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? That was Nebuchadnezzar that said that. And he concluded, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. That's what he learned from God. Before the almighty God, when I realize who God is, I disappear. (laughs) He becomes my all. He he becomes everything. Not just my everything, but he becomes everything. (laughs) He's all that I focus on, all that I see. I don't think about me and my concerns and my worries, my anxieties. Before Almighty God, there are no problems. Not really. Why? Because he's that powerful. There's nothing that's hard for God. He is able. He's more than able. That's the picture of his hand that we have here in First Peter. That's what Nebuchadnezzar referred to, the hand of God. It's a metonymy. It's a figure of speech that represents his strength just in his hand. <laughs> he's a spirit. He doesn't have a hand. But if he did, that's what we refer to, that his immense power and strength. You remember when Moses was with the people of Israel in the wilderness in November's 11. Uh, no, excuse me, Numbers 11. November 11. This past week, he was there. No. Numbers 11. It was a stressful time for Moses. The people are grumbling, and they're, they're about to rebel. They're saying, Moses, why did you bring us out here? Just to kill us? We don't have anything to eat besides this manna that God gave us. <laughs> they said, we need some meat. Moses says, God, just kill me. I can't take this. He was so stressed. He was so anxious about what was happening. God says, I'm going to give them enough meat. It's going to come out of their nostrils. <laughs> so God says, you're going to get sick of this meat. Moses says, how are you going to do that, God? There are over 600,000 people here. 
What are you going to do? Flaughter, just slaughter all the flocks and all the herds all around us? Are you going to capture all the fish in the entire sea and bring them over here to feed these people? God, how are you going to do that? Isn't God amazingly patient with us when we mouth off to him like that? Verse 23 of November 11, God says, Is the Lord's hand shortened? Now you will see whether my word will come true for you or not. And it did. God did it. Because the Lord is omnipotent, all-powerful. Even in just the picture of his hand, he does everything and nothing is too difficult for him. He delivered Israel from Egypt. That was a mighty show of his power, delivering them into the promised land. He took all of the people after they were exiled and he scattered them from, that were scattered and he brought them all in from all the places he had driven them. He brought them all back. That was a mighty show of strength. And once and for all, he showed his mighty power when he sent his son to die for us on the cross and save us. This is the God that says in Isaiah 41.10, fear not for I am with you. Be not dismayed. Be not anxious, be not worried, be not fearful, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Is this God who will uphold us with his right hand strong? Isaiah 57, 15, thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Oh yes, this God is powerful. And this God dwells in the most high places. The the heaven of heavens cannot contain this God and yet he is here for us and with us. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace when we are humble. That's what we should be constantly occupied with, discovering more of this God And his greatness, which humbles us. It brings us low because he is so high. We don't have to work to bring ourselves low. We don't have to try to think less of ourselves. We think of ourselves less, as it has been said. And so we humble ourselves before this God. And he gives us grace, which Peter explains here in verse 6, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. In God's perfect timing, when it is according to his perfect plan, not ours, he will exalt us. And when he exalts us, he exalts us higher than we could ever exalt ourselves. Our pride and our imagination can exalt us to some pretty high and lofty places, can't we? We can imagine ourselves pretty high up. But Ephesians 3.20 says to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we could ever ask or think. According to the power at work within us. He's talking about now. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. God's work to exalt us in his time is far more abundant than we could ever ask or think. That power is at work with us even now. So get rid of any kind of prideful, self-exalting, self-focused thoughts. Because even if you could reach the heights of comfort, even if you could find a place where you were comforted and you were exalted and you were above all of the problems, it would never be as high as how God can exalt us. And he will exalt us one day in his perfect time. So what do I do with all these anxieties then? What do I do with all these worries? All the troubles that keep me up at night, the troubles that that make life difficult or make life impossible, what do I do? 
we humbled ourselves before him. But what does that look like? What's the practical way of doing that? We do that by verse 7, casting all anxieties upon him. Our anxieties, our apprehension, our distress in view of possible danger, misfortune, or concern, or what could happen, what might happen, what somebody might think or say, all of that, we, we, cast, we are casting it upon the Lord. We may have heard this verse as a standalone teaching. Well, if you want to get over anxiety, all you got to do is just cast everything on God, right? It's just a standalone verse. Take this verse and call me in the morning. Start doing that and you'll feel better. That's not this verse at all. You see, there's a comma there between verses 6 and 7. Verse 7 doesn't begin a new sentence. It's a lowercase c because it's a good translation of the original because it is a participle that's dependent on the main verb. So what does that mean? (laughs) Humble yourself. Allow yourselves to be humble, verse 6. How? Verse 7, by casting all your anxieties on him. It shows us how we can be humble, how to be humble before the Lord. These are connected. These verses are all connected. The verse numbers and the, the paragraph breaks that we have here were not in the original. These are all these verses of being outwardly humble and being upwardly humble are connected, and that's, the, that's part of, of our life, and that's what God desires from us. It's, what, it's how he gives us his grace. And and the way that we are upwardly humble is by casting our anxieties on him. It's not two separate commands. It's not a two-step process. This is how we do it. You cast them on him because you see in your amazing wonder of him and your humility of yourself that you're not able to handle what he's got. If you've tried to remove your anxiety simply by throwing everything at God and wondering why it hasn't worked, it may be because you've been misled in teaching of this verse. You see, we don't just throw all of our problems at God and say, now God, fix it all. (laughs) And how come you haven't fixed it? How come everything's not better? You know, I would be doing fine, God, if it wasn't for all this stuff you've brought into my life. So now fix it all. (laughs) That's not this verse. I want to get back to what I want, God. (laughs) That's not the instruction from God. We may have really been acting more in pride. And as we've already looked at, that's what God opposes. That's not where we get grace from God. So if we've tried that in the past and it hasn't worked, maybe this is why. Casting all our anxieties upon him is how we humble ourselves before him, not how we demand to get comfort and get through things. God has us going through what we're going through for purposes, for reasons. And they may be so high above us that we wouldn't even understand if he did tell us what they were. And most of the time, he doesn't tell us what those reasons are. And so it's prideful for us just to throw back in his face everything that he's giving to us and bringing us through. Because he's working that plan. That plan of saving us and making us into the image of Christ and making us useful for him. So it's humility to let him know how much we need him by casting those anxieties on him because of his greatness, his transcendence, his loftiness, and yet he cares for us. This picture of casting here, this this word casting is a picture of a fisherman with a net. The net was really heavy, really large. It had weights attached to it so it would sink down to where the fish are. And, And they wouldn't just drop the net into the water to keep it from tangling. They would cast it into the water with all their strength They'd muster up all they had and they'd cast it all together, all at once into the water. 
in the original, this word anxieties is singular. Not to say like, well, you've only got one worry and, you know, this is how to deal with it. It's not sort through each one of them and cast them each over. No, the, the picture is to cast all of them as one big lump, this net that would strangle us, the net that gets tangled around us. He says, take the whole thing and cast it upon the Lord. That's the picture here and that's the instruction for us. Don't separate humility from casting. We've already talked about this wrongful casting without humility. That's sometimes what we try to do, but there's another mistake we can make. We can make a mistake of not humbling ourselves. God, I'm not going to cast anything. I'm not going to have any worries. I'm going to pretend like I'm okay and that I can handle it, God. God, I've got this. There's no need to worry about me. I'll figure it out. (laughs) We might think that that shows strength and that shows maturity in our walk with God, but it really shows that pride within us. You know, God, it's okay. I know what you're trying to teach me here. I know what you're trying to do. I got it all under control. I can handle it. Don't worry about me. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard it said and how many times I've let the word slip out of my mouth, the teaching that's behind this, the wrong advice for life. While you're going through hard times, just suck it up, right? How many times have I, have I said that? How many times have I heard that for people? Suck it up, buttercup. <laughs> you hear those things in the military, right? Save the drama for your mama. Suck it up, deal with it. You know, I mean, just get over it, right? That's the advice that we hear and that we have given ourselves and that we give other people. And it seems like humility because I'm not complaining. I'm just getting through it. I'm going I'm to grin and bear it. It's admirable, right? It's commendable, but it's not biblical. And it's not humble. When you're in the middle of difficulty or you're struggling with worry or anxiety or the future or the answers, whatever, the answer is not just get over it. The answer is not just suck it up. The answer is also not what we hear. Just forget about it and just let go of the things you can't control. Just let it go out there into the sea of no control. That's not it either. You humble yourself before God who cares for you, who gives grace to you, who will exalt you in his time, casting your anxieties on him for strength and guidance and wisdom. That's where we get the grace of God from. You don't try to figure it out on your own. You recognize the majesty, the immensity of God, and you bring him your anxieties, and you grab more fully onto him. I let go of myself, I let go of all the problems and the worries, and I grab onto God who is in control of everything, not into that sea of who knows what's going to happen. We entrust our soul to the faithful creator. Remember that in chapter 4, verse 19? Just because I don't control it doesn't mean that nobody does. God's got it all under control. So it doesn't help much just to tell someone, just let go of it all and, you know, you can't control it, just forget it. The Bible's teaching us to entrust it all to God, to cast those anxieties on him. Now, I found this quote, it's probably too strongly worded, but I wanted to read it to us because it helps, helps us to correct any wrong thinking we have. Again, it may be too strongly worded, just remember that, but the, Christians, quote, Christians never resent the experiences of life and never rebel against them because they know that the mighty hand of God is in control of their lives and that he has a destiny for them, end quote. So it may not be true that we never resent (laughs) what happens. It may not be true that we never rebel against them, but that's our goal, that's our aim, because God's in control of them all, and we're entrusting to him our lives. Now, this isn't a 
open excuse uh, to, to complain time, right? I mean, we're not saying, okay, when we're going through hard times, just complain all the time. That's not good either. We're not saying complain about everything, and we're not saying uh, try to handle everything yourself. Do it all yourself. But do you see how dangerous and insidious pride can be? Do you see how it can work within us? It can either make us toss everything at God and demand rescue, or it can make us hold everything in and just think that we have to deal with it ourselves. Both of those are equally wrong, and both of them are absent of humility that God works through to bring us grace. Now, a word of caution, because humbling ourselves before God, this is not a work that we have to try to do to receive God's grace. His grace is always unearned, undeserved. We cannot ever earn His grace. But again, if we're so busy this way, we can't receive the grace that He's giving to us. The same place that He'd put the grace is occupied when we're holding on to ourselves. Verse 7 says literally why we would do this. Why, why would we feel comfortable being open to him and humble before him? Because it matters to him about you. That's the literal. That's the, you matter to God. He cares for you. Anxiety and pride will gang up on you in your mind and they'll tell you nobody understands. There is no one who hears, there is no one who gets it, no one who cares, and if you hear those, vo- those thoughts, read this verse. God cares for you. Think about the God who says this to you. Is this an idol that someone created that says this to you? Is this that crutch that cavemen created millions of years ago because they couldn't figure things out so they created God in their minds? No. This is the real, true, living God who is all-powerful, who is above all. There is no one greater, none more able. <laughs> that's the God that we sing to. That's the God that's in the scriptures, the, the all-powerful God, the almighty, all-knowing God who says this, who isn't just loving, he is love. This God who is love, that's the God who says this to you, that he cares for you. Latch on to this truth, throw off the lies, and hold fast to this. God cares for you, brother, sister. It's not true that no one cares for you in your anxiety. Pastors here care for you. We may not even know you, we may not have met you yet, but we care for you, and we want to get to know you and help you. Your brothers and sisters here seated next to you will care for you and will want to help you if you'll allow them to. But even if it were true that the whole planet didn't like you, Even if it were true, and it's not, but even if it were, God says here he cares for you. Who else do I need to care for me if God is caring for me? No one has ever cared for you like God has. No one ever could care for you like he has and does care for you, brother and sister. You cannot say as a believer that no one hears you, no one cares for you, no one understands, no one knows. This God does, and he will hear and care for you. But it's upward humility and it's outward humility that allows the grace of God to come to us. So our application this morning, what do we try to remember? As we go from this place and as we reflect on these verses, first we we need to humble ourselves before God by knowing him and casting all our anxieties on him. We're, we're, We're knowing him and casting our anxieties. That's how we humble ourselves before him. We get to know who he is. We don't try to work on ourselves and I'm a worm, I'm garbage, I'm nothing, I'm trash, I'm worthless. No, none of that's true. You're made in God's image and he cares for you. 
So how do I humble myself? Because I see how amazing and great and wonderful and awful, not terrible in a bad sense, but awful, full of awe, God is. That we trust in him. We trust our souls to him. Next, be clothed with humility by serving God's people. Be clothed with that. The humility, again, begins inside, but it always has to come out. There's always a relief valve within us, this this pressure cooker that we're in. It's serving God's people. You can overcome being paralyzed or hindered in your anxiety by becoming humble before him, by loving him, loving his people. In Christ, this all becomes possible. If you're not in Christ, if you don't know him, this is not going to work. This won't happen. You need his grace first, and we can help you with that. Again, this is not all we need to know about anxiety. This is not a take these verses and you'll just get all better. You may struggle with this for life. But this is part of how to struggle God's way, not the world's way. Brothers and sisters, this is a plague of anxiety and it's worse even than COVID-19. It affects more people and there is a proven immunization for it in God's word. Let's take it. It's 100% effective. Father, we praise you, Lord. We lift up your name. God, not just because this is church on Sunday, but God, because always you are sovereign, you are powerful. God, you rule, you reign from heaven and here on earth. There is no place where you are not, God. You are all around us, you are within us. God, you're not everything. You are so far above everything and separate from it, and yet you inhabit it all because of your greatness. You're too big to be contained by creation. Father, we submit to you. Lord, we allow ourselves to be humbled under you rather than propping ourselves up in pride because, God, you're worthy of that. Because it's the truth. Father, I pray that that would be true of us, that we, you, you would be working in us to make that a reality every day. God, that we would be submitting to you and humbling ourselves before you Lord, that that you'd be working in us to be humble before the people that you have saved. The other people, Lord, that are our brothers and sisters, our one another's God. Lord, I pray that you would give us a, a greater urgency to help those people, to make disciples of Christ. Lord, we pray that you would give us the ability and the urgency to reach outside of these walls. God, that we would help other people. The people all around us who are struggling, millions of people struggling with this problem. And Lord, the world's answers fall so far short. God, I pray that you would help us to rely on you, to trust in you for ourselves, for one another, and for all of the others outside. God, we give ourselves to you. We give our time and resources to you because of your greatness, because of your deserving worthiness. We praise you. We lift you up. We exalt you in Jesus' name. Amen.